1: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised.
1: True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil nations. An infamous stretch of highway in northern British Columbia has become known as the Highway of Tears. For decades, People have been murdered or gone missing along this remote highway. The victims have primarily been indigenous women and girls. But in 1989, an entire family went missing at the same time. Ronald Jack and his partner Doreen Jack were just 26 years old. They were parents to two young boys, Ryan and Russell. As a young indigenous family in northern British Columbia... They struggled to make ends meet but when life knocked them down they would get back up again they were resilient on the evening of august 1st 1989 ronald jack got an offer that seemed too good to be true tonight we present the disappearance of the jack family and you are listening to true north true crime
0: Everyone and Welcome to episode 36 of True North, True Crime, and thanks for joining us. We had some people donate coffee for this week's episode, so we want to take a quick minute to shout them out. A big huge thank you to Karthik, Jane, Allie, Sarah W., Ifty, Tara Lynn, Ange, and a really generous anonymous donor. We really appreciate the caffeine. If you would like to buy us some coffees for an upcoming episode, you can do so at buymeacoffee.com slash pod. We also have merchandise for sale at our tea Public store. If you would like to pick up some TNTC clothing, coffee mugs, magnets, or stickers, you can check out the merch link in our show notes. As always, we want to thank you for supporting the podcast by listening and telling your friends about True North, True Crime.
1: Also, we recently made an appearance on Bob Ruff's new podcast, True Crime Binge. Bob Ruff is a true crime legend, so it was absolutely an honor to get to meet him. We chatted with Bob about our podcast and the unsolved murder of Trina Hunt. Please check out episode 56 of True Crime Binge. It's a great podcast where Bob uses his big platform to bring attention to smaller podcasts like ours. This, of course, was super cool of him, and we are grateful that he invited us on his show. Okay, let's get into tonight's episode.
0: Tonight's episode is a case that was suggested to us by many of our listeners, including some family members of the victims. We are talking about the disappearance of the Jack family, the first ever documented case of an entire family going missing in Canada. Ronald Jack, who was 26, along with his wife Doreen Jack, who was also 26, went missing along with their two boys, 9-year-old Russell and 4-year-old Ryan.
1: This case is one of the most frustrating missing persons cases in Canadian history. The fact that an entire family can go missing and it not be front page news every day until they are found is a tragedy in itself. Canada is a highly successful nation with lots of available finances and resources, so how does this case of a family of four who went missing over 30 years ago still remain unsolved? Our hearts go out to the members of the Jack family who continue to fight for them to this day. We hope this episode helps in some small way.
0: We put this episode together using publicly available news articles. There is also an incredibly informative APTN show called Taken. They focus their season 4 episode 1 on the Jack family disappearance. It is a great episode featuring interviews from family members. You can stream it on CBC Gem. We will link this in our show notes. For our episode, we were not able to interview any family members in time to record, but we did use the Facebook group called Missing Jack Family Out of Prince George as a resource to get the most accurate information possible. The admins on this group are family members. We highly recommend joining their Facebook group. We will link it in our show notes.
1: If you are familiar with this case, we are afraid that we will not be presenting much in the way of new information. Our intention for this episode is to provide more exposure to this disappearance and to keep the Jack family on people's minds.
0: When people talk about the Highway of Tears, they tend to think about a 750-kilometer stretch of Highway 16 between Prince Rupert, British Columbia, and Prince George, British Columbia. But there is more to it than that. Much, much more. Built in 1970... Trans-Canada Highway 16 is also known as the Yellowhead Highway, or BC Highway 5.
1: It begins in the town of Masset, British Columbia, on the island community of Haida Gwaii. Then, it travels a ferry route to Prince Rupert. From there, it continues on to Prince George. At this point, Highway 16 continues in a southeastern direction, traveling into Alberta through the Rocky Mountains near Jasper, and then to Edmonton. From there, the highway enters Saskatchewan at Lloydminster and then east to North Battleford. The highway continues in a southeasterly direction, entering Manitoba near Russell. After entering Manitoba, the highway travels another 273 kilometers before it connects at Portage La Prairie with Highway 1, or the Trans Canada Highway. In total, including the ferry from Gwaii, Highway 16 extends across Canada. For 2,960 kilometers, connecting four provinces, the highway is vast, to say the least. It is believed that an unknown number of people have been murdered or gone missing along the entirety of this highway. However, the most infamous stretch of the highway spans the 750 kilometers between Prince Rupert and Prince George, British
0: Columbia. For decades, people would speak about men and women going missing along this stretch of highway, the majority of which were indigenous women living among the rural communities that dot the highway. In 1981, the RCMP held a conference to investigate cases of unsolved murdered and missing women along Highway 16. At this time, they were known simply as the Highway Murders. These cases involved women who were either found dead near Highway 16 or were last seen in that area, often hitchhiking. Detectives from British Columbia and Alberta attended the conference. Looking closely at the cases, they revealed a number of similarities, including reports of suspicious vehicles and suspicious people. The Highway Murders Initiative did identify some prime suspects in certain cases between 1981 and 2005, but women continued to disappear or were found murdered along the Highway of Tears in British Columbia. In 2005, the British Columbia RCMP's Unsolved Homicide Unit created Project E-PANA to expand the scope of the Highway Murders Initiative by investigating other cases of murdered and missing women and girls in the area along. Highway 16. This led RCMP to widen the geographic area under investigation from the 724-kilometer Prince Rupert to Prince George section of the highway to approximately 1,500 kilometers, which included not only Highway 16 to Hinton, Alberta, but also sections of Highways 97 and Highway 5.
1: The exact number of people who have disappeared or been murdered along Highway 16 is disputed. The RCMP acknowledges 18 murders and disappearances in its list of Highway of Tears cases, dating from 1969 to 2006. However, indigenous groups argue that the number is misleading, and that the real number exceeds 40. Others believe that this number is much higher if you include the entirety of the highway from Prince Rupert to Portage-la-Prairie. The RCMP uses three criteria when reviewing the cases of missing and murdered women to determine whether they should be included in the Project EPANA investigation. They are as follows 1. The victim was involved in a high risk activity that would expose them to danger, such as hitchhiking or being involved in sex work. 2. The victim was last seen or their body was discovered within one mile of Highway 16 or Highways 97 and 5. And the third criteria was they had to be a woman. Due to this narrow criteria, the Jack family are not, formerly, an EPANA file. However, advocates state that there are more missing and murdered people than Project EPANA acknowledges. This includes the Jack family.
0: Doreen and Jack grew up in the Burns Lake area of British Columbia. The area is located in the northwestern central interior of BC. Burns Lake is rich in First Nations heritage and culture and is represented by six local First Nations. Burns Lake is known for its beauty. The abundance of natural resources has made it foundational in the logging, fishing, and mining industries. Doreen grew up with her two sisters Lorraine and Marlene, For a lot of their life, the young girls were raised by their grandparents. Their life with the grandparents was quite a traditional one. In fact, her sisters recall traveling by a wagon that was led by four beautiful Clydesdale horses. The girls learned berry picking. They learned how to hunt using a trap line. They also learned the medicines of the land. Doreen was a fearless child and wasn't afraid to climb trees or get dirty. She was also a patient teacher who helped her sisters to learn skills like riding a bike. She could also be protective and always looked out for her sisters.
1: But in their life in Burns Lake, there was also trauma. Abuse due to alcoholism was also a part of Doreen and her sister's story. According to her sisters, when the girls lived with their father, they were exposed to substance abuse along with physical, emotional, and sexual violence. Men would come to visit their father to drink. When the drinking started, the abuse started, and Dorian would sacrifice herself to save her sisters. Eventually, the sisters would be taken by the government and sent to the lajack Residential School, located on the shores of Fraser Lake. Sadly, the abuse continued there.
0: The sisters were not allowed to acknowledge one another at the school. One of the sisters recalls smiling at her sister at school and being punished for it the girls were told that their biological family members were no longer their family.
1: At some point, perhaps after the Lejac Residential School closed in 1976, the girls returned to Burns Lake and attended Grassy Plains School. Grassy Plains School serves a large geographic area around Francois Lake, referred to as the South Side. Doreen would meet Ronald or Ronnie as he was another Southside kid. In fact, he took the same Southside bus to school along with Doreen and her sisters.
0: Ronald, who goes by Ronnie, also lived a traditional life. Ronnie came from a big family with six brothers. Ronnie enjoyed making music and dancing. Ronnie was also a hunter, and he could often be found working the trap line with his brothers.
1: Mabel Jack, who is Ronnie's mom, is a hereditary chief of the Skin Tai'i First Nation. The Skin Tai'i Band is a small First Nation of Wet'suwet'en heritage. Eventually, Ronnie and Doreen would begin hanging out, and eventually, Ronnie would ask Doreen to be his girlfriend.
0: We have heard it reported that Doreen came into the relationship with her oldest son, Russell. Regardless of the paternity, Ronnie was Russell's dad. Russell was born February 28, 1980. He was loved by the whole family. Doreen's sisters adored him. Being Doreen's first child, he was her number one. And she raised, loved, and protected him. Russell was absolutely cherished. He was fun to be around. He inspired family members as they were given the opportunity to teach him and pass on their knowledge. In
1: 1985, Doreen gave birth to her second son, Ryan. Ryan was more of a rambunctious one. As he grew older, Ryan and Russell loved to watch wrestling, and like many kids, they wanted to act out the moves they saw on TV. This would result in wrestling matches in the living room. Sometimes these would end in tears, but most times they would end with laughter.
0: It is believed that by the summer of 1988, Ronnie, like many people in the 80s, was struggling to find permanent work that would help him to support his young family. Ronnie had a lot of experience as a day laborer and in the logging industry. At that time, the city of Prince George was looked at as a place to go for work in the natural resource industry.
1: Prince George is a city that's located about two and a half hours east of Burns Lake along Highway 16. The town itself is a bit of a rough and tumble town that traditionally attracts men working in logging or mining camps or who are working on large infrastructure projects like dams or pipelines. It is believed that in 1988 that Ronnie and Doreen moved with their kids to Prince George in search of a better life for their family. We're now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. The sponsors who choose to advertise on this podcast are instrumental in providing us with the opportunity to tell these stories. So please give them a listen. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at
0: uh1.com and we are back so by the summer of 1989 ronnie and doreen and the kids ryan and russell had settled into life in prince george They were living in an apartment complex located at 2116 Strathcona Avenue. According to aerial maps of the area, Highway 16 travels past the back of the apartment complex. It's basically in the backyard of the building the Jack family was living in. In August of 1989, Doreen and Ronnie were both just 26 years old, Russell was 9, and Ryan was 4. It would seem that at the time, Ronnie was still trying to find consistent work, which is common in the timber industry. He had recently injured his back while working at a sawmill and was receiving social assistance.
1: On the evening of August 1st, 1989, Ronnie walked down to the First Leader Pub for a beer and a game of pool. The First Leader Pub was a country and western bar located just a four-minute walk away from Ronnie's apartment on Strathcona Avenue. This was super convenient, as Ronnie and Doreen did not have a car at the time. While at the bar, Ronnie met a yet-to-be-identified man. The man has been described by two witnesses as Caucasian, between six and six and a half feet tall, with reddish-brown hair, a full beard, and a mustache. His hair went to the bottom of his ears and was parted on one side. In 1989, he would have been around 35 to 40 years old and approximately 200 to 275 pounds. He was wearing a baseball cap, a red checkered work shirt, faded blue jeans, a waist-length blue nylon jacket, and work boots with leather fringes over the toes. The man would have towered over Ronnie, who was just 5 foot 7 and 140 pounds. Ronnie and the man engaged in conversation for a while.
0: During this conversation, Ronnie disclosed that he had been struggling to find work and that he needed to support his young family. Upon hearing this, the man stated that he was working at a logging camp that needed help. He offered Ronnie a job on the spot at a logging camp near Klukul's Lake, about 40 kilometers west of Prince George. At this point, perhaps, Ronnie hesitated. Maybe he didn't want to leave Doreen and the kids behind, so the man sweetened the offer. The man stated that Doreen could also have a job as a kitchen helper at the camp, noticing that Ronnie was still hesitant. The man stated that the logging camp had a daycare, and that the kids could come too.
1: Ronnie and the man decided that a contract for a few weeks would be good. That way Ronnie and Doreen could make some money but they could be back to Prince George before the end of the summer so that the kids could be back by the start of the school year in September. Eventually, Ronnie agreed. It sounded like a great deal. His kids would be taken care of, and he and his wife would have some solid work for a period of time. But there was still one catch. The Jack family did not have a car to get out to the remote logging camp. It turned out that the man had a solution for that, too. The man told Ronnie that he would be able to drive the Jack family to the camp, but they would have to leave that night. Ronnie agreed and quickly made his way to his apartment just a few blocks away to get ready and tell Doreen the good news.
0: While at home, Ronnie made two phone calls. At 11.16 p.m., Ronnie called his brother and told him about the camp job. Two hours later, at 1 a.m., Ronnie called his mother in Burns Lake. Ronnie told his mom that he met a man at a local bar who told him about the jobs available at the camp, but time was an issue and they would have to leave right away. Ronnie was excited about his luck, meeting the man. Ronnie told his mother that the camp was past Bednesty in the Clu Culls Lake area. Ronnie said that they would be gone for about 10 days and that the camp had a daycare available so they were going to take their young children with them as well. He also said that they would definitely be back home in time for Russell to go to school in September. Ronnie also stated, if I don't come back, look for me between Vanderhoof and Lucas Lake. This would be the last time that anyone would hear from the Jack family.
1: But there were also eyewitnesses. People who lived nearby, including one of Doreen's sisters, witnessed the man in his pickup truck waiting outside of the Jack family home. They saw Ronnie and Doreen going back and forth from the apartment to the pickup truck with their belongings. Then, at 1.21 a.m. on the morning of August 2nd, 1989, all four members of the Jack family, Ronnie, Doreen, Russell, and Ryan, were seen leaving their home at 2116 Strathcona Avenue after piling into the man's four-wheel drive dark pickup truck. They have not been seen since.
0: Two weeks later, on August 25th, 1989, when the Jack family did not come home, they were reported missing to the RCMP. RCMP investigators began searching the Jack family home. The first thing that investigators noticed was that the family had only taken enough belongings for a two week stay. They had not moved or brought the entirety of their belongings, meaning that they had expected to return. This was not an intentional disappearance. RCMP searched the area around Prince George by foot and by air, but turned up nothing.
1: The RCMP also spoke with logging camps operating in the area. None of them said they were hiring at the time. As more family members began to find out about the disappearance, they began to see some holes in the man's story. The biggest one being the daycare. For many health and safety reasons, logging camps do not permit children on site. There has never been a logging or work camp that offered a daycare, especially in the 1980s. Also, how would this man have the ability to hire someone on the spot at a bar on a Tuesday night? Another issue was that the man insisted they leave in the middle of the night, immediately. This is odd. These concerns, along with many others, show that the man clearly had criminal intentions. He had abducted the family under false pretenses and taken advantage of a family that was struggling to
0: survive. On December 19th, 1989, law enforcement did eventually release a composite drawing of the man. Another one was released on June 6th, 1990. While these sketches did generate leads, the RCMP has not released any further information about the man, suspects, or areas of inquiry.
1: On January 28, 1996, at 8.30 a.m., seven years after the Jack family disappearance, the RCMP in Vanderhoof received a phone call. It seemed that there was a man calling from a house party that was linked to an address in Stony Creek, British Columbia. Because the caller was calling from a house party, it was hard to make out exactly what he said. The phone call lasted about 10 seconds, and the man stated that the Jack family are buried in the south end of something ranch. The caller hung up before the dispatcher could ask any follow-up questions. A recording of the call was sent to the University of British Columbia for analysis. Technicians believed that the man stated, the Jack family are buried at the south end of Gordy's ranch. The RCMP searched what they thought was the right Gordy's ranch, but did not find a trace of the missing family. The RCMP did identify the residents that the call came from, which had a house party the night before. The RCMP interviewed the partygoers but discovered no new leads and could not identify the person that made the phone call. This seems to be where many of the publicly available leads on this case end.
0: Over the decades since the Jack family went missing, Many people have put forward theories as to what happened. Some people hypothesize that perhaps there was some kind of vehicle accident, that maybe the pickup truck careened off a remote road, and that the wreck has just not been found yet.
1: Some people have hypothesized that a serial killer is to blame. Bobby Jack Fowler is an American serial killer and serial rapist whose crimes are suspected to span from Virginia to British Columbia and all points in between. His criminal record spans from 1969 to 1995, when he was finally arrested. He died in prison of lung cancer in 1995. Fowler was under investigation by the EPANA investigation team. He has been a person of interest in the murder of two women in 1973. His DNA evidence was found on one of the victim's bodies. It is suspected that Fowler may be responsible for up to 20 murders between Oregon and British Columbia. The only evidence linking Fowler to Prince George seems to be a job at a roofing company in 1975. The Jack family and the RCMP do not believe that Bobby Jack Fowler has anything to do with the disappearance of the Jack family. Although his name is mentioned a lot in theories, evidence shows that Fowler was active in his crimes in the United States during the time that the Jack family went missing.
0: David Picton has also come up as a suspect. David is the brother of notorious British Columbia serial killer Robert William Willie Picton, who was suspected of murdering up to 60 women. William Picton is currently serving life in prison for his crimes. Although he confessed to 49 murders, he was only convicted of six. The main reason that people suspect David Picton in the disappearance of the Jack family is that he bears a striking resemblance to the composite drawing. His reddish beard, his hair, his face shape, and his style of dress. Adding to the suspicion is the general consensus among Canadians that David Picton intimately knew much more about his brother's crimes than he has publicly stated. In fact, many people believe that William was the fall guy of a larger conspiracy of murder by a group of men in the same criminal circle. However, again, There is no factual evidence pointing to David Picton being involved in the abduction of the Jack family.
1: Marlene Jack, Doreen's sister, who is a family spokesperson and the admin of the Facebook group Missing Jack Family out of Prince George, released a statement about Fowler and Picton on January 14th, 2021. In the Facebook post, she states the following, It has come to my attention seeing videos and stories on the Jack family on who may be responsible for their disappearance. I have contacted the RCMP in regards to this and have been assured that David Picton is not responsible in any way for our family's disappearance. He was nowhere near or even working in Northern BC when my family went missing. I have confirmation from the RCMP in an email that the Pictons had nothing to do with the Jack family case. And neither did Bobby Jack Fowler, as he was in the United States in 1989. So please, if you're going to share about the Jack family case, please be sure to talk to the family so you can get the right info out there and help us to find closure and bring our family home. Thank you.
0: To this day, it is unclear who abducted the Jack family, but evidence points to this being intentional and criminal. There is one man responsible for the subduction of a young indigenous family. But after three decades, there have to be more people who know the truth about what happened in the early morning hours of August 2nd, 1989. One thing is clear. British Columbia has a missing persons problem.
1: According to an article on Capital Daily, BC recorded 12,400 missing person cases involving adults in 2020 more than 40% of the country's 29,645 cases. The reason for 70% of the missing persons cases in British Columbia is listed as unknown. The second most common reason, accounting for about 12% of the cases, is marked as other. According to the National Center for Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains, 61% of missing adults reported in 2020 were removed within 24 hours and 89% were removed within a week. In a 2019 article, it was reported that 2,500 people have gone missing and stayed missing in British Columbia since records started being kept decades ago. That number in the whole of Canada is approximately 7,000. So clearly, BC has a problem.
0: Of those missing in this country... Indigenous people, specifically women and girls, have been disproportionately affected in these numbers, specifically in rural areas along Highway 16. The vastness of the topography, along with the lack of access to services, forces people out onto the highway to go to larger towns to seek healthcare, groceries, and government agencies. But along the highway, there has not been reliable public transportation, there is not reliable cell coverage, And there's not adequate lighting or policing. People are forced to hitchhike to access appointments in the cities along Highway 16. This is not done by choice, but rather for survival.
1: There has been some movement on the Jack family file in recent years. In late August of 2019, the RCMP executed a search warrant on a rural property south of Vanderhoof. Acting on a tip, the RCMP brought in expert civilian consultants heavy machinery and ground penetrating radar to search the property. After three days of searching between August 28th and August 30th, the search came to an end. They did not find any evidence in relation to the abduction of the Jack family.
0: Marlene, Doreen's sister, expressed disappointment that the search came up empty and said she's not giving up on her search. She once again asked for people with information about what happened to the Jack family to come forward so the family can find them and bring them home to lay them to rest. She stated that now all I care about is to bring my family home. That's it. The justice part is up to the RCMP if they're willing to pursue it. She said with the information she has about the most recent lead and the search, there's more to be followed up on. This information is just too accurate to ignore, she said.
1: In September of 2017, Marlene Jack shared her story at the National Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry in Smithers, British Columbia. She spoke of her trauma at the LaJack Residential School, the trauma she experienced at home during childhood, and the struggles of living on Vancouver's downtown East Side. And she also shared about the profound pain of losing Doreen, Ronnie, ryan and russell she spoke of her fear of speaking out the fear that if she pressed too hard that the authorities would stop investigating the jack family disappearance
0: marlene was praised for her courage by the commissioner of the proceedings and the other participants outside of the meeting hall she stated i feel a lot of relief they need to understand how we grew up being in residential school and the violence that we had to go through I'm glad that my story is out.
1: If you would like to help the Jack family, we encourage you to join the Facebook group Missing Jack Family out of Prince George. In that group, there are posters and articles and updates that you can share. The admins do an awesome job of keeping people up to date on the RCMP investigation and the hurdles that they are facing every day to find the missing Jack family. We will link that group in our show notes. We will also be posting photos, and posters on our social media. We encourage you to share those and share this episode.
0: Ronnie, Jack, and his family, Doreen, Russell, and Ryan, were in a vulnerable situation. They believed that the man was helping them. He offered them work and a ride. They accepted what was presented as kindness. It was a lie, a trap. They should not have been victims of a major crime due to their financial situation or due to lack of work and resources. The man knew he could take advantage of a vulnerable indigenous family living in northern British Columbia.
1: The man Ronald met at the First Leader pub in Prince George is described as a Caucasian man in his mid-30s to early 40s standing six foot to six foot five and about 250 to 275 pounds. He had a reddish beard and mustache. He was wearing work clothes and drove a four-wheel drive pickup truck. He was active in the Prince George area in the 1980s and into the 90s. Do you know who he is? If you have any information, please come forward to the Prince George RCMP or call Crime Stoppers.
0: We want to thank you for joining us for this episode of True North True Crime. We have many more stories from the Highway of Tears that we are following up on. Our producers on the podcast are Sarah B.W., Lisa Marie, Amy's Book Reviews, Thomas E., Susan S., Alex and Andrea P., Kennedy, Alberta, Cindy McD, Blair M, Alyssa S, CJ Jeze, Anastasia, Ariel E, Melanie E, Kelly D, Carolyn M, Emily L, Jason D, Jimmy H, Tiffany C, Keith R, Mari M, Lorena, Queen Nebula, Maureen, Jesse D.R., Louise Rickshaw, and the Missing and Unexplained Podcast.
1: We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks as we continue to cover stories of missing people and victims of violent crime in Canada. So until
0: then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe.